1: You're listening to Pop, The History Makers, with me, Steve Blame. Welcome to part two. Later on, Marcus Veer from Living in a Box talks about his amazing kids' trucks TV success, the new line-up of the band as they prepare for more gigs, and about the highs and lows of the band. But first, at the end of episode one, Living in a Box had just signed a record deal and immediately went off to the States. Well, what happened to Marcus and the guys in L.A.?
2: doesn't always stay in LA i mean you know i think we'd arrived with a with a tour manager who'd come from the management company with us who literally inju- introduced us to some girls that he used to know at the cat and fiddle which is the english pub in in hollywood at the time <clears throat> and we arrived knowing nobody, and we left, and we threw a party for over 500 people about six months later, so we, we got very much into the scene. You know, here are three English boys with English accents who've just got a record deal. I mean, we weren't manhole cover designers, do you know what I mean? So, you know, if you're going to Hollywood, you want to be in the business. I would hate to just go there as a punter. I mean, you are, you know, you, want, you know what it's like. And everybody wants to know who you are. Okay, you haven't got a record out yet, but here are these three English kids who've got a hot record deal, and they're recording in Hollywood, and they've got... You know, thousand dollars a week per DMs each, and they've got a car, a flash car to drive around in, and a nice apartment. It's like, well, what's not to like, you know? So, we were invited to virtually every party. We, you know, we were ligging in a box. I think it was probably more an apt, a, a, a better name for us. So, we were at every opening. We went to the Chanel's house, which had a river running through it. We went to Sammy Davis Jr.'s place to his party. Um, what was that like? We invited up to the Magic Castle, you know, where they do all the, where that's all based up there um you know and we just we got into a real i mean a real scene and i can remember there was a club called the 2020 club and there were there, all these artists would play the house band was earth wind and fire if you can imagine that prince would get up and do a track chaka khan would get up and do a track and we, it's just like god you know would, is this actually happening and you know of course the musicians that we'd all seen on record labels palinio da costa on you know on albums or you know, whoever, um, you know, there was, there was loads of them. You know, we used the backing singers from Luther Vandross's band, and we used the, the sea wind horns from Earth, Wind & Fire. It was just like, yeah, you know, this is, this is amazing. You know, this is absolutely insane. I mean, one of
1: the really fascinating things about what the, the record company uh, did is that they pushed you, in a sense, with a sense of anonymity. Totally. So could you just tell me about that?
2: Well, yeah, again, possibly another mistake. I mean, I think one of the first mistakes, and I would advise against anybody using an eponymous band name, so Living in a Box by Living in a Box. We couldn't come up with a name. We just couldn't. We, sh- we, sh- well, we probably should have worked a bit harder and flipping went. Then why did you call you Living in a Box by Living in a Box, which is great in terms of drumming the first hit through, but when you start going Living in a Box, room in your heart, Living in a Box, blow the house down, it's like, oh, what? And I'm sure Big Country maybe have had the same problem and others. Um so that wasn't ideal um what was the question again
1: um that you were pushed with a sense of anonymity you know you were almost like a black band from america but you weren't well that was three white guys
2: another that was another sort of clever little marketing ploy so we had the weird thing with the band name the second thing is with living in a box the first single they wanted to put out the uh 12 inch arthur baker mix out on a white label by mailing it in from New York with a New York stamp on it to all the clubs in the UK, so that the UK DJs thought we were an American band. Um, and it was at that time there was so much going on in the in the in the music scene in New York and, and the underground dance scene that it was just cool to be, you know, coming from the states. They probably would the chance, they, I think they 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 hedged it and then well, if they're three white middle class white boys from Sheffield you know does anybody came we've got an absolute monster on our hands but if we if we don't know if we don't know who they are it's totally anonymous it's mailed in from new york maybe they'll play the record and they did it went number one club um which was a great springboard then to to people like um you know um you know the radio djs and and in there and go on to radio from the club scene like tony blackman and so on so we talked about but um you know you pay a price for that anonymity because they want to think it then sort of well, we were seeing Curiosity Kill the Cat all over the front page of Just Seventeen magazine or whoever else, and we weren't doing any of this. Uh, Richard, of course, was the most um, sort of publicity-shy pop star that's ever existed in humanity, and actually was quite happy to, to not have any um, images or be doing photo shoots or all that kind of thing. Titch and I sort of went along with it. We just thought, well, this is fine. Um, but, you know, after a while, even to this day, people don't really know what living in a box looked like. I mean, we can walk out on stage, hey, it's living in a box. And they go, yeah, it's like, oh, right, oh, yeah, sort of. Um, and it's, it's, it's a bit of a weird one. But I don't know whether it's a good or a bad thing, to be honest. It's just the way it was for us.
1: I think there's a positive side to it as well, because being in the public eye, although, you know, I think a lot of people, you know, sort of see that as an ideal, that they would like to be well known, they'd like to be, you know, famous in some sort of way being in the public eye does have uh, a side to it uh, that isn't, isn't that comfortable. Oh, yeah. So maybe that was also something that allowed you to have a private life
2: as yeah. well. Well, I think so. I mean, we, you know, we, either way, we would, we would just do the interviews that we we thought we wanted to do, that were not particularly, um, you know, pop orientated. So we do some more of the music tech magazines or we do The Face or Q magazine. Um, that was in the UK. And... Other territories, they took the handbrake off completely. And I remember in Japan, it was, it was madness. I mean, they, you know, would split us up when we'd fly over to Japan and, and we wouldn't see each other for three days because we, we would all be doing separate photo shoots, separate interviews, separate TV interviews, so they could maximise the amount of time that we were there. Italy, a little bit like that. And then, then there were occasions when it was, you know, you know, police outrider protection and all this kind of nonsense. Um, so, yeah, I think you're right. I mean, we could walk around Notting Hill having a great old time and just, you know, having I mean, watched watch ourselves on Top of the pots You go out and nobody know who you were. I mean, Top of the pots probably was the first time I was like, ah, that's what they look like. But, of course, by that time, you've got a top five record. And everybody going, yay, this is great. But I never knew there were three white kids from Sheffield. In fact, I think and Wikipedia and had us down from Manchester up until about the week before last when somebody got, <laughs> kindly changed it. Although Richard was reading from Stockport, so maybe they got it from there. But, yeah, the anonymity thing never really bothered us that much. But it's a bit of a weird one sometimes when people don't know who you are.
1: I bet it was one of those people who were putting up the posters from Manchester back then who wrote that yeah, probably. entry yeah, let's, just let's to piss let's you off after all well. these years. <laughs> 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 the, um, I mean, you said that, and I think that's an interesting point about living in a box because it's living in a box and the living in a box track, and that you get the known for a, one thing. Living in the box album made, as well. Yeah, you made some fantastic um, tracks at that time. Um, do you think then that that really was part of the reason, or you know, you mentioned the record company and the record company not being able to Chrysalis not really being able to promote like uh, "Room in Your Heart" uh, yeah. in America, well, whereas once, it was a hit in Britain, wasn't it?
2: It was a hit all over the world. I mean, it's one of the biggest songs. I mean, you, just even in terms of what when you see your PRS and you see where things have been played and the longevity that that song has had, it's probably the, the song the song I'm most proud of. Um, and it was a big record everywhere, except the States, when I think they managed to get it to 67 or something. And of course, by this stage, when you're looking, you know, obviously we were not in LA on the freebie, you know, you're paying for that. You could really do with recouping from the whole world and making sure that every territory is doing the best to make, to sell your records. And when, I think we'd gone over on some unfortunate West Coast promo tour uh, in the States and they just tanked room in your heart. And remember Richard being like, so fed up. It's like, what are we doing guys? I mean, you know, the bill is is huge. We're doing well everywhere. We've always wanted to have some success. We worked with Albert Hammond on "Room in Your Heart," and he, you know, was having hits that were just absurd. You know, I mean, he'd written the Olympic theme for Whitney Houston. He'd written to all the girls I loved before, and started with little arrows and ended up in, you know, uh, yeah, just writing hit after hit. Tina Turner, you know, go on and on and on. As Aswad had that big don't hit, "Don't Turn Around." He'd written that. Um, so he was well used to having hits, and when, he, when we'd finished, I'd finished with him writing uh, Room in Your Height, he said, my God, this is probably my favourite record that I think I've probably ever written, and for a guy like that to then be told that Chris's record had fumbled it to number 67, it's like, what are we doing?
1: Was that why Richard came out of the band? The five years were up, and you'd, you'd actually, you were um, uh, recording the third album, I believe, was that, Was there a particular moment, well, there must have been a particular moment where it ended. Do you remember that moment and what exactly happened?
2: Yeah, I mean, Richard has sort of made noises to us before um, about, you know, and I I couldn't disagree with it. It was like, listen, we're getting on fine. We we love each other and we're having a great time. And the musical aspects of what we're we're doing were very converged. I think there was two things, forces at play. One, which we've just gone over, which is the issue in the States. The second one was that Richard definitely wanted to get more songwriting of his songs on on the record. And I'd written the hits. And so therefore I was principally earning the most money out of it, to be brutally honest with you. And I think Richard always felt, look, I'm I'm fronting this. I'm singing your songs and I really want more songwriting. And Richard's songwriting um, centre was much more AOR, middle of the road, than where mine was. Um, and so when well, I said, Richard, you know, obviously trying to appease to a certain degree, well, let's do some more stuff like you would do. And then suddenly living in a box be- starts to become something else. And I think at that point, I was beginning to resist how far we would go into, into, into going where richard wanted to go musically and richard just said look i think i think we're gonna to have to call it a day and then the let's get also brutal money wise whenever ever any artist signs a record deal they are signed jointly and severally and i think richard was picking up if he left the band chrysalis got first choice um because obviously they've spent all the money getting living in the box to where they are richard is a name to some degree um and they give him you know they were going to give him a big check which they ended up doing and so he managed to Short circuit, ever having to put anything out, he gets a big lump of cash, he gets to do a solo album, and we lose our singer. Um, and I said to him at the time, I said, Richard, not even Mick Jagger has managed to leave the Stones and have a successful solo career. George Michael has just done it, but you're going to count the numbers of artists, Steve Wood, probably, but very few, who leave a band environment, solo artists, and go solo and have a successful career. And he went, I'm probably am making the biggest mistake, but I'm going to do it anyway. And I went, okay, what can I do?
1: I mean, in that sense, he left you, for a better sort of phrase, he left you a little bit in the shit. You know, you'd had these five years of massive success and those five years, and I don't think they do define you because we come to that later, but these five years in that sense at that time had defined who you were. So Mm -hmm. how did you, I know that you carried on songwriting, but how did you feel emotionally at that time about your life?
2: Well, I mean, I remember saying to him... um, and every artist would agree with this you need luck it doesn't matter how good you are you need some luck but you work for that luck you create your own luck but you need it and we'd had it we'd had our break we'd got living in a box way we were a brand name to some extent you know it's like trying to find that again is really bloody hard you know so so it was it was it was bad times it was like well Jesus, what do we do now? And would I have done anything differently? Would I have just quickly replaced him with somebody? The record company, of course, by that stage, are all going, whoa, shit. You know, we, We've got a solo artist, so you, with that, we've just paid more money for that. So living in a box, we're not really interested in what you've got to say. And I was a bit burned from the whole thing and just thought, I'm just not going to do anything for now. I, I, I actually don't know what to do. Um, I mean, there are points in life, aren't there, when we go, I don't know what to do. You know, we've all played clever. Oh, yeah, this is all a good idea. And this is always a plan. No, I just did not know what to do next. So there were a couple of years, really more than a couple of years where I just sort of I'd met other songwriters that I I wrote some songs for other artists, wrote some more songs with Albert Hammond. um, And without the vehicle to write for, it soon came really apparent that personally for me, I am not a jobbing songwriter for hire. I admire the guys who are, who can go around and they can read a brief and they can drop a song on and it'll be absolutely spot on. It will be a hit. I am not that guy. I need to be writing songs for me, for my band to do my thing. With my ideas, And personally, to me, I can't go out and write a three-minute pop song for an artist I have no connection with, you know. So that was a a very strange time, really, and, and sort of ended me in the career for about, I suppose I was in the wilderness probably for about eight years, I should imagine, before I decided that I wanted to do something else, you know
1: you're listening to pop the history makers with me steve blame i think that's interesting even it's fascinating that you say eight years um because when i lost my career and i'd come to germany ran a tv channel lost my career it was 10 years before i could sit up again and do something else right i look back at that time and i say that completely defined who i am today and thank god Mm. that happened how do you look back at that dark period and when did it start changing again because i know that you've really moved on into something which is also wonderfully successful
2: Well, I think, you know, you, what it does take, you know, you're stunned for a while. And certainly if you're a creative, being stunned, as you will know, is not ideal. It's not like we are accountants and we can go and add some more sums up. You know, it really completely wrecks your emotional centre um, and takes a while to sort of put the pieces back together. And so, you know, I met my wife. We moved on, had a family. Um, I experimented with all sorts of other different things that I wanted to, to look at, um, but always came back to music because at the end of the day, that's what I do. Um, and I, I love doing it. And I wanted to find a new way to express myself musically where I could retain my control that I just referred to. So I'm, not, so I'm writing for a vehicle, for a, for a project that is mine in entirety in my own control. And I fortunately, I, I found it once my kids were very young um, with the Little Big TV project and uh, Kids' Trucks TV as it's now become, and now we're doing a new series of, of animation. Um, and that's just grown because I, I, I'm a control freak, right? I mean, I just love being able to be totally responsible for things. And that was the problem, I think, in those wilderness years, where um, I, I just get pulled from pillar to post. And, oh, yeah, go, yeah, you know, my pub should be dropping with all these individuals and nothing really worked for me. Um and so yeah I had to take control and find a new creative project and the industry had changed so let's not forget as you well know the digital revolution for better or worse um came into play so what you did as an artist and how you could earn money from it completely collapsed in around 2000 um and so it's like well you know YouTube became a thing um but you know that sort of certain technologies converged to get me excited about what I could possibly do as an independent without having to sign a record deal and sign my life away. I could do it completely off my own bat, and by the mid to late 2000s, it was a sustainable business model to basically make make your own programs. Which I ended up doing educational programs for kids.
1: What's what sort of triggered that? Um, the actual idea I know you wanted to find something, but what actually triggered this? particular thing
2: um two things having a three-year-old son who stood absolutely (laughs) aghast every time a tractor went by or a bus or a bin lorry uh or a digger you know it was just like you know almost shaking with excitement and I thought well that's an interest you know and they all do it you know, they, also, they still do it. Uh, machines, as they will tell you in kids' telly, are king, you know, um, you know. And my wife, who's from Boston in the States, had just come back from um, Boston, and she'd, her, her brother, who lives over there, had uh, just bought a VHS of a, uh, a locked-off camera on a building site, which I think it was, like, number one in the US video chart. Uh, and it obviously cost about 30p to put together. And it was shocking. It was awful but my son loved it. And she, and Tish said to me, well, why don't we do something with, with your music, put some songs in it, put a little character in it, or maybe we can get some guys to film some tractors going up and down a field. Um, And so it was her idea. Um, And I thought, well, this sounds great. And we know we've got a ready-made audience in our kids that are at home, you know, ready to sample test it.
1: Hiring for your small business. If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place.
2: And so we thought, well, we're living in Chiswick. There aren't many tractors going up and down Chiswick High Road. Um, better get on the phone and see if we can get some tractor action going. We'll start with tractors. So we phoned up John Deere, who happened to be probably the biggest agricultural machinery company in the world, and blagged about £4.5 million pounds worth of kit in Suffolk. They never asked the question if I'd done this before. Lucky break. Because the answer would have been no or well, I might have blagged it actually I might have blagged it but anyway then yeah sure well if you want to film some stuff there's there's, there's some machinery and stuff that we're on t- that's on test with some farmers so we uh, got a mate who got a camera we stood in the field we filmed the tractors going up and down and then we thought well let's film a farmer and try and get a little bit of a storyline you know and I was trying to remember all those shows that I used to watch as a kid that had got that sort of slightly mom and pop really nice sort of warm feel but educational then i'll start writing songs so i wrote here comes a tractor which became this sort of phenomenon um and then we called the, the show here comes a tractor we did here comes a fire engine here comes a digger here comes a train and they went off and i remember putting it up on youtube nothing happened for about six months in fact we'd sold them physically on dvds just before dvds then passed on and youtube became its thing and anyway on youtube nothing happened for about six months 50 views 500 views five thousand views. views oh, yeah, okay and I didn't look at it for about, I don't know, nine months, a million views, two million views, five million, 15 million. It was like, oh, my God, what's happening again? And then, of course, the revenue stream starts to come in, the songs we started to put on, you know, Spotify and, and, and Apple Music. And then we got this huge fan base, which, which was just unbelievable. So I got the magic back. I got the magic back.
1: What um, do you think that you needed from the business acumen that you must have learned from being a pop star in you know from 85 to 90 and having all that success and and suffering sort of those failures along the way as it were from Mm. the record company what what do you think you learned from that time which has made you make the right decisions for this project
2: well i think again there's a little bit of luck and and you know let's 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 be honest, as you're moving from a, an analog world selling a physical project to a digital world selling a digital product, that has to exist for me to have been able to do what I did. So that, the, the, lay, the lay of the land had to be right. Um, and in terms of business, well, you know, you are always look at a model in terms of trying to work out how much it is you going to cost you to film this stuff, so relatively cheaply, and also what revenue streams you're going to get. And I didn't really know what revenue streams we were going to get, because I didn't know how many streams you'd need to be able to get, a, get some income going on, on YouTube and what you could do with it. Um and the power that, that you would have with it and 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 developing subscribers and a fan base essentially that you can say anything to and talk to and communicate and involve in the brand. So I don't know. There are maybe there are there are similarities. It's this distribution is king, isn't it? It always has been, you know, for artists to try and get their music out there, their artwork out there, or whether it's NFTs now with people doing artwork, or whether it's, you know, Bitcoin and understanding how that works and blockchain and blah, 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 blah. So YouTube, social media, Instagram, so on and so forth. Um, these are all sort of things that I found just naturally very easy to understand and work with um, mainly because I've worked with computers and everything from sequences right through to mixing desks. And so technologically I understood how it worked and uh, it, it was not something I was afraid of. Uh, I think what was really nice as I come back to is that I could control all the content completely. Um, and as we're working t- now to start working with animation and, and understanding how that works and, to change the characters and, and take this project further into something even bigger, and books, and you know all the stuff that you can do in, in kids' entertainment—that um, is the new frontier for me, and what I'm going to be involved in for the next five or ten years. You know, and I love it, even What's though the, my kids are now now, now at university. But I mean, you know, um, I'm still I'm still tuned into it.
1: What's the success of "Here Comes a"? Um, the central factor in you. Being able to allow yourself to say, "Okay, why not? Let's go back on stage. Why not? Let's reform in inverted commas and and uh, be back on stage as Living a Box." I believe you've done sort of one performance in two thousand and four, but actually yeah. to sort of come back as a, as a reformation <laughs> of Living well, in a Box.
2: Well, yeah, there, there was two. Yes, there was two. But in two thousand and four was our performance where Richard joined the band. I mean, he came back in. Uh, it hadn't worked out for Richard. He uh, got so disillusioned with the music industry, even more so when he got it. Even you know, I think you found out how hard it really is. And I think I, I, you'd have to ask him. But I think there probably would be regrets there that we we were there. You know, we were known we if we got we got a record company who was making a third album. We should have given it a go. But it didn't work out that way. It didn't work out for Richard once he'd left the band. Um, and so it was quite an easy when we were offered this tour, which was which was a, an arena tour um in 2004 I, I said to him look do you want to do it and he went well why not and we got together and it was great we really enjoyed it Richard had made it very clear to me at that stage that he although he'd he'd enjoyed it he was he's still one of the most nervous performers with this incredible voice and incredible ability to play guitar um it's just astounding to me that he, he's so terrified but he didn't feel that he wants to do it anymore um, some years later we were offered tours and we go out now and do all the rewinds and the let's Rocks, so and we still do those and we're doing um, some more this year um, so we've been touring doing this sort of if you like a, a hobby thing which all the artists do I suppose maybe they're t- topping up their pension pots and we don't get enough money to, to, to do that but it, we love doing it I mean I think in the day we didn't do much live work because of MTV we were basically spending more on a video than a live tour um, and uh, technologically, it was also a bit tricky because we we're using so many sequences and it wasn't as easy as it is now to transfer that. But anyway, um, so yeah, like the live thing is very much something that I'm hoping we can right the wrong of never really doing it much in the day, in the moment, and do quite a bit of late now doing these wonderful H's tools, which are, you know, all over the place. Um, and we're, we're very much part of that.
1: Was it a difficult decision at the beginning, though? Because obviously Richard wasn't a part of this you know what you're currently doing and that's also Mm. changed again but actually like looking for a new vocalist and playing into that is the fact of the anonymity in the past in a sense well yeah may have played into the fact that you can be successful with a different vocalist
2: well this is true I mean there was that is the one upside uh, as I say is the anonymity in terms of being able to walk the streets at the time when everything was happening for us was one thing many many decades later um, there was one really quite sure I mean the real diehard fans um, obviously know Richard's music inside out and there was always some kind of phobia about well can you imagine trying to replace I mean for me personally I had to get over the fact well um, you know Richard was so much of a distinctive voice with that booming Michael McDonald versus uh, James Brown edge you know I mean it's like you know, I mean how are we going to replace that and then once I got over the fact that we weren't going to replace it you know, not usurp it in a way. Let's do something else with living in a box. Let's let's let's. Why does it need to be specifically that era? It could be anything. We could move on. We could even do new, new music. That's another conversation. But let's see who's around. And uh, and I just uh, we were offered all these amazing gigs, which we turned down year after year after year. And Richard Titch and I were going, well bloody hell We should you know, we're not gonna be here forever. If we're gonna do it, let's do it, let's find somebody else. Well, we're gonna need a singer, dude, you know, well, let's see who we've got. And I just went through my mind, of people that I've met who I thought were never gonna be possibly how Richard was, but would get, give a good account of themselves and possibly take it somewhere else. Um, and there's nothing wrong with that. And many artists, as we know, from Queen to Wet Wet Wet, to, you know, loads of them have changed their lead singers. Um, it's just the way of the world and it can be very successful so Kenny Thomas's head came into, name came into my head and we'd been stable mates at Chrysalis Records uh, Cool Tempo and I'd known the stuff that he'd done and I thought well he hasn't got the bite and the oomph necessarily that Richard's got but he has got the soul and, and that's really crucial um, so I phoned him up and said listen this might sound a bit mad but we've got some gigs coming up do you want to be part of Living in the a Box for the gigs and he went let me think about it <laughs> Next day, Fermeo went, yeah, absolutely. You know, I love it. I said, these are the songs we're going to do. He said, oh, Room in Your Heart, sing a song, man. I've got to sing that song. I've always wanted to sing. I used to dance around my bedroom singing that song. To actually sing it to a big audience would be just awesome. And we did, and we did it for three years. And we had the most hilarious time. I don't know whether you know Kenny, but he is a bit of a comedian. In fact, if if, his music business ever fails him any further, then he can have a great career in stand-up. But we had a great laugh, and it was really fun, and it was brilliant to get all the songs back together again and do a bit of Kenny music and a little bit of Living in a Box. And I think people would be like, hmm, this will be interesting. Living in a Box featuring Kenny Thomas. How's that going to work? But once we'd got there and the promoter saw it, they went, shit, this works really well. This really goes really, really well. And we do a couple of covers to Living in a Box and Kenny Thomas. Um, And there's a couple of shows up on YouTube and live at Lhythm. If you look at Living in a Box and Kenny Thomas, that's a bloody good show with a a good video and you can hear it working really well, really well, it's brilliant.
1: But Kenny's now... Moved on?
2: Yes, and, Kenny moved on.
1: And who, who are you working with now and why did you choose? Uh, this
2: so, so, yeah, so Kenny wanted, you know, we had lockdown and it's tough for everybody. Kenny's been always more of a working musician, um, has never really stopped. Um, whereas, as we've been describing with Living in a Box, that's not the case. We've only really dipped our toes back in in the live scene relatively recently. Um, and he was offered the opportunity to make a new solo album um, and to do a tour because it was the 35th anniversary or the 30th anniversary of Voices. I can't remember. Decades have gone by. Um, and so schedule-wise, we were starting to get off the date. So I was saying, Kenny, we got this day. And we were like, gosh, I can't do it. And this one is like, oh, now we've got a real problem here. So Ken, we just decided mutually it was, it was best that Kenny went off and, and did his thing. And with our blessings, fine, it's all good. Um, but then again, it's like, Oh, I've been here before. <laughs> How many singers gonna band out? But again, because we were fairly en- enigmatic, um, not so much of a problem. And i would spoke to a few people, Martin Ware being principally one of them, and again, I'd, Martin Fry being another one who are very close friends and said, look, I don't want to make a tit of myself. I'm not going to go go out trying to drag this smelly old thing around with me and drag it around the clubs and, and, and fields of, uh, of event world. If it's not going to work, I'm not going to flog it to death. I'll just call it a day. You know, I mean, a care, but I, I'm not going to try and drag all the good things that we've done over the years down by just finding anybody who can do anything. And, they, and the name Brian J. Chambers came up from both of them, mainly from Martin Ware, who'd worked with a couple of backing singers, who I'd also worked with, who'd worked with him um, when we did a show to raise some money for Kenny's daughter. Um um, which i organized for for kenny and got involved with all the 80s artists that i'd worked with over the years and beverly knight and beverly knight is a good old friend of, of kenny's and brian chambers works a lot with with beverly and so i'd spoken to her about and it would just become a, a sort of like this is the name that seems to be cropping up all the time and then i got on the internet as you do before, before our content, i throw content and have a look at what he's done and I, was, I saw his show with pink floyd at pompeii and he took a couple of lead vocals i saw the duet that he did with with Beverly Night at the um, one of, it a Royal Variety Show or it was a show at the Palladium I think, in London. And it was just like, oh, this is, this, this is another Richard in a way. He's got the power and he's got the grit and the punch and, the, and he, you know he's worked with everybody. I mean, he's just a brilliant session guy, but has also worked you know, the house scene back in the 90s as a solo act and ended up in Butlins at two o'clock in the morning, getting the audience going. So, you know, he can do that as well. So I asked him and he, and he, thankfully he thought about it again for a bit and then said, well, why not? Let's do it. So we're going to go out this summer with Brian taking over the lead vocals. And it should be, from what I've heard from our rehearsals, absolutely full on.
1: Fantastic. Now, you mentioned, uh, obviously, all the way through Titch, who must be a close friend of yours because you've, you've had this close relationship all you know, throughout the years. Martin yep. Ware, who I know is a close uh, friend of yours. Martin Fry, ABC, who you wrote songs for on uh, Lexicon Love 2, I think. And, That's correct. Um, and he's a close friend. Now, I know that some of you go away on holiday together. What is it about this group of uh, all have been and, and successful in their life and all yeah. have been musicians in their yeah. life? What, yeah. is, it, is it that? what you have that connects you or is it something else that sort of deeply connects you? I mean, I think Sheffield is probably a connection as well. Well, obviously.
2: I mean, I, I didn't know, I, I wasn't in a position to know that I sort of I knew, knew of them in Sheffield as like bow down to the great ones who had broken through the cellophane line and were all over my television on a Thursday night or whenever it was for Top of the Pops at the time. So it wasn't really until I'd moved to London that I had, that I'd met these guys, which is really strange. I never actually exchanged a word with them in Sheffield because I'd be watching them do a gig and they would be like the gods, you know. Um, So I'd met them in Sheffield because, you know, you just do as you're doing the circuit and, you know, they were a bit before living in a vaults, but still. And we just hit it off really, really well. And I've been on holidays with Martin Fry and Julie, his wife, and in fact, had lunch with them about three or four days ago. We still see a lot of each other. Martin Ware is part of a group that do, as you say, go around on my boys' trip. Um, which we do every year. Um, we're going to uh, San Sebastian in uh, Spain on a culinary uh, foodie thing and Bilbao is going to see the Guggenheim. We're going in a couple of weeks. And they are all from the north or, you know, in the music industry. And it is a bit like a busman's holiday. I mean, it really is. Oh, we, we, we just potter about and talk about the, the days and the music industry and what we're all doing now. And, you know, Martin is a an octopus of tentacles that go out into... All sorts of different things from whether it's his 3D sound installation to all sorts of other. He's never, he's never shy of a project. So I'm usually sitting there in awe listening to what the next thing is, um, where he's become a professor of this or a whatever it is of that. Um, and we've just become really good buddies, you know, really, really good buddies. You know, he's a godfather to my um, to my son JJ. And you know, we we have just been mates for all these years, and as Sheffield Wednesday fans, we go and see them play whenever we can. He's, he's died in the Wall Sheffield Wednesday. And, um, yeah, we just, I don't know, it's weird, isn't it? But we've just become solid buddies. Solid.
1: Now, when I started this podcast interview with you, I said, you know, that you played an important role for me um, during the 80s because of your music. And plus of someone being on MTV, you know, <laughs> your videos were, were on, you know, high rotation a lot of the time. So, in, you know, in essence, that fed into my life during that era what fascinated me when i went uh to out to the local cafe actually this morning and someone asked me oh what you doing today and i said oh i'm interviewing marcus fear no reaction living in a box oh living in a box you know immediately and they are under 30. right and it's amazing there's something about living in a box which connects Different generation. I think it's probably actually that 80s music somehow connects a lot of people. Um, But what do you think it is? Is it because you were on different soundtracks? You were on games soundtracks? Yeah, I I think there's a,
2: yeah. Um, Well, you're right. I mean, wherever I go in the world, you know, you're sitting by a pool somewhere, Some, you get to know someone over a couple of cheeky beers and they might say, well, what do you do? When they picked up the courage to ask the impudent question. Um, and you say, oh, I was in the pop group. And they'll, they'll, you can see them mulling it over their head. They could be from anywhere. I was recently in Mexico, for example. And, um, and they'll go, Any, anybody we know? And I'll go, well, how old are you? And they'll go, well, I'm whatever I am. And I'll go, well, I was in a band called Living in the a And they go, what? what i've been living in a cardboard box and it's like yeah it it, it it is that and then again maybe another upside to the eponymous nature of it because if i said we were in the doohickeys and we had a song called living in a box well maybe i don't know but anyway so it's, it is really really well known but i think in terms of young audiences first of all who are by the way i know my kids are but then of course they'd have to be um age is still even my mates my kids mates are big into the 80s they're really really big into the 80s and i think they can hear and smell and feel all that we felt about the individual nature of that music and how different it is but how what fantastic songs and great sounds and risk-taking that went on in terms of the records that went on also because of grand theft auto 5 which living in a box was included in in um the yeah the, the grand grand theft auto 5 which was in 2013 um became the second biggest selling video game of all time and that's quite quite something and and you know so you jump in a car and you smash into some grannies pushing prams um <laughs> and you can turn the radio on in the car and living in a box will come on so you you are talking about um you know 150 million selling product um that's introduced our music to that generation um so for sure a lot of fan base that we get on our socials or, or stuff that goes through the website and emails are going, oh, I just got in the car and I really got into you, your song, Living in a Box. We've just got into the first album and Gate Crashing. We're also getting into that as well. And it's really sweet how you vertically sell these things from one lead off into, into a video game, of course, which didn't even exist, really, uh, in, in, when that song was written, to becoming another, another launch pad globally. So we were very thankful for them, uh, to Rockstar Games, who put us on that, it was great.
1: A final note, throughout the interview, you said, right place, right time. Uh, I was lucky, it was luck that Richard Derbyshire was in the studio, it was luck that this happened, it was luck that that happened. Um, And even when you talk about your kids' truck TV, you mentioned the word, you know, luck, that you were lucky. Um, Mm. But isn't luck basically a combination of talent, and possibly, in your case, just being a nice guy. Do you know what I mean?
2: Well, like, that's very kind. You know? Yeah, I mean, so let's face it. You know, you can have as much unluck or bad luck um, as you can have good luck. Um, I just I'm fairly karmic, as you can tell. You know what I mean? I, I believe that what you do in good things and the way you deal with people um, does come back positively or negatively, depending on how you are. Luck, you've got to create it. You've got to have it at the end of the day. I mean, that's what I'm doing with my kids now. You know, they're at university. They're just starting to look at what careers they want to go into. And I said, you've got to have the ticket. You've got to get in. You've got to be in the room. So you get your degree or whatever qualifications, your skill set. And then you've got to obviously a bit of people skills too. And then a bit of luck will come into you probably meeting the right person Who's the right job, got the right job for you? But you've got to make it. you've got to put yourself about. You know, I think as we often hold ourselves back creatively, I know a lot of creatives do, because they haven't got the outgoing spirit, that they might be genius programmers or songwriters, but they don't push the music, they don't know the right people, because they haven't put themselves in that position. So you earn your luck. for sure, you make it. We all know this. And sometimes as a creative, going back to the idea of a box that is not really there. You just perceived it to be there and that's what holds you back so if you can just break through it get out there and make that luck happen then maybe you're going to be luckier than someone who doesn't
1: brilliant that's a wonderful final note and thank you marcus for your contribution to music which has been very very important and i wish you continued success with all your ventures, and hopefully one day I'll see you on stage in the not-too-distant future.
2: Well, I hope so, Steve. Well, thank you for asking me. It's been a real pleasure.
1: And that's it for this interview with Marcus Veer of Living in a Box. I'll see you next Monday with another of POP's History Makers.